From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. This week, we're diving into the At Liberty archive and returning to a conversation with historian Jill Lepore. We're on the brink of a once-in-a-generation change. Congress is considering a plan to create a pathway to citizenship for up to 8 million people. This September, the ACLU is urging Congress to pass a reconciliation package, which includes a path to citizenship for DREAMers, temporary protected status holders, farm workers, and other essential workers. But what does it mean to be an American citizen? And how did we get here, to a place and a time when we deny so many the ability to become an American? These are the questions that Jill Lepore explores in her book, These Truths, which tells the story of how our nation has evolved from its origins. Jill is a professor of American history at Harvard, a staff writer at The New Yorker, and a prolific thinker and writer on history and contemporary politics. In this conversation, Jill speaks to former At Liberty host Lee Rowland. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Jill, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the idea of who gets to be an American. Americans are fond of saying that we're a nation of immigrants. Have we always thought of ourselves that way? Uh, Can we start with, say, our founders? Did they consider themselves immigrants? Yeah, they did consider themselves immigrants, but they also didn't really talk about nationhood at the time. Nationhood is an idea that reaches its maturity in the 19th century, and so does citizenship. So they're not really quite talking in the terms that we talk about today. And it I don't mean to sort of be semantic about it, but it does make a difference how people in the 18th century talk about what it means to found the United States. And when they are talking about subject peoples or we the people, what it is that they mean by those terms is actually different than what we mean by those terms. And that's one of the reasons to study the past, right? We want to watch how things change and see who's in control of those changes. But with regard to immigration, it's just actually from a historical vantage, like immigration was an issue. Like that doesn't make any sense as an 18th century phrase to say, right? It is the case that the people who are at the Constitutional Convention say, do talk about whether the Constitution guarantees rights, including the right to vote or right to hold an elected office to people who are naturalized citizens. That's a question that finds its way into the language of the Constitution. So those terms are bandied about in some fashion at the Constitutional Convention. So James Wilson, who's a Pennsylvania delegate, has come to the United States from Scotland. And when there's a question about, say, whether members of Congress have to be native-born, because they decided that the president, people running for president have to be native-born, you know, Wilson's like, look, I'm not going to be part of a government where I can't even be a member of Congress. And that's why we don't have a native-born requirement for the people to run for Congress. So it's not that those things aren't discussed, but they're discussed in, in, on the whole in different ways than we talk about them today. What do you make of these two levels of citizenship qualification that they had some drafters who were born abroad and said, hey, I'd like to be a member of Congress maybe, but the consensus was to ensure that the president of our young republic was born here. What does that say about their concept of nationhood? Yeah, that's a late-breaking addition. The native-born subject clause about eligibility for the presidency, John Jay makes that suggestion, I think, in a letter to Washington, and it just kind of gets plopped in there. The reasoning behind it is so that the president isn't in the thrall of a foreign power, right? That's why Congress adopts it. 
it seems like a pretty limited investment in the idea of any kind of restriction with regard to citizenship status, not citizenship status, but native versus naturalized citizens. Um, and there's not actually a debate about it. And if there wasn't a debate about it, we don't really know what people were thinking at the time. That's the trickiness of trying to devise our current set of political ideas out of what are fairly circumscribed conversations at the Constitutional Convention. Like things that were uncontroversial, we just don't happen to, <laughs> that didn't really require a lot of justification. Like It would have been a good idea if there'd been a conversation about what that phrase even means. What is a native-born citizen? Like in a monarchy, you understand what a native-born subject is. Like that comes out of English common law. You know, what a native-born subject is, is someone who's born in the realm of the king or the queen. And mm-hmm. that idea doesn't have a lot of logical coherence in a republic because the whole metaphor in a monarchy is that the king is essentially your father. There's a whole logic of paternity and nativity that is about birth and the monarch as the father of the people. And if you chuck that out, then what does birth mean becomes much more complicated. And that's the thing that they don't, you know, when Jay writes that letter to Washington, there's not a big conversation about that at the time. There's obviously been many conversations about it since then, most especially uh, during the debates over the 14th Amendment in the 1860s. But in the 1780s, there's not a big discussion about what a native-born citizen means. So you kind of scoffed at the idea that to an 18th century brain, immigration would have had the same politicized context as for someone today. When did that start changing? When did immigration become the political issue we now think of it as? It's sort of frustrating as a historian that so many things seem timeless to us that, of course, are not timeless at all. And it's sort of just worth pausing over and thinking about, okay, in the 18th century, there are no determined certain borders to most parts of what declares itself to be the United States. or that Even the borders between the states are actually that is the 13 original states, are subject to a whole lot of quibbling. I mean, that's one of the reasons the Article of Confederations are a problem. They can't really negotiate boundary disputes. So there's certainly no borders to the United States where there's any kind of immigration regime enforced. Even if there were immigration laws, which there are not before 1881, there are no federal immigration laws, there's no apparatus to enforce them. There's no modern administrative state. There are no passports in the 18th century. Like that, what we think of as recognizable mechanisms by which a nation state patrols its borders, they're modern. Can I ask you as a practical matter, what did immigration look like before 1881 when there were no rules and there was no centralized (laughs) enforcement mechanism? Uh, Well, you show up and you go and look for work and you have no identification. No one has any identification. There is no way to know who you are, who you say you are. People come with letters of reference. If you're a specially prominent person, like Thomas Paine famously shows up in Pennsylvania in 1774. He kind of washes up. He's gotten sick on board. Then no one knows who he is or what he's there for. And he's pretty much in tatters. But he has a letter in his pocket of recommendation from Benjamin Franklin, whom he had met in London. And so he manages to get a job at a a newspaper. But yeah, you just kind of wash up on the shores. (laughs) sort of what what everybody does. So you would ask, like, when does a modern immigration regime begin? So much of the work of the 19th century involves, in not just in the United States, but in Europe as well, 
thinking about how nation states gain their authority and this sort of mutually constitutive process between what a citizen is and what nations are and how nations guarantee rights to citizens, the sort of emergence of liberal nationalism over the course of the 19th century. In the United States, that's actually maybe a little bit more kind of harem scarum and messy than it is in Europe because the United States is in such flux. I mean, the country is growing at such a tremendous rate. Nowhere else in the, in the history of the world is a population growing as fast as the population of the United States grows in the 19th century. So there's this extraordinary flux. And then the whole nature of the political system is undergoing this tremendous revolution. So in the 1820s and 1830s, American politics is democratized when all white men can vote, which doesn't happen anywhere else in the world, whether you're poor, whether you pay taxes, whether you can read or write, whether you're an immigrant, everybody who's a white man can vote. And that's an extraordinary convulsion in American politics. But still, people don't know what it means to be a citizen. I tell a story in the book about about in the 1860s, the U.S. Attorney General charges his staff to sort of go through every federal law and the Constitution and all Supreme Court decisions to try to find a definition of the word citizen, and they can't find one. Like, there just is no definition of what a citizen is. And that work of identifying what a citizen is and establishing requirements for citizenship, that's largely the work of Reconstruction. I can see the clear appeal for white men to come to America. They'd be able to vote. Who else is coming to America during this period of time? For most of American history, the majority of European migrants come in families or in family groups or even, uh, you know, through the sort of classical late 19th century chain migration, essentially whole towns moving family by family across the Atlantic. With regard to the forced migration of Africans, uh, you know, which begins very, very early, that trade that starts really in the 1440s and then begins, you know, stretching across the Atlantic by the early 16th century, the forced African migrants are both women and men, and they're all, including children, they don't generally come as families. In fact, the whole work of that trade is separating people from their families. An exception would be Chinese immigrants in the 19th century is chiefly men. And a lot of Mexican migration in the late 19th and early 20th century is just migrant worker, you know, migrant farm workers, Uh, and other kinds of migrant workers, it tends to be predominantly men. I'm glad you mentioned Chinese immigrants in particular, because one of the things that stands out as kind of a dark mark in our immigration history is the Chinese Exclusion Act. And that seems so starkly different as a view of immigration than, say, just decades before when people were openly pouring in. Can you tell us about the period in history where immigration became such a politicized issue? And Yeah, so... Uh, There's no federal law restricting immigration before 1881. And nor, again, as I've said, is there any possible conceivable federal apparatus that could have enforced such a restriction. Right. And that law from the 1880s is the Chinese Exclusion Act. And it happens to take place at the very time that the first Jim Crow laws are passed, the laws that are segregating black and white populations in what comes to be called the Jim Crow South, the former Confederacy. But those things both follow on the developments of the 1860s, of the Reconstruction period, the 14th and 15th Amendment, and in particular the 14th Amendment, 
which establishes birthright citizenship, which has the effect of meaning that the children of Chinese immigrants are American citizens. And that's one of the arguments against it. So a lot of people in Congress who are opposed to Chinese immigration get very worked up about the 14th Amendment because of the Birthright Citizens Club, not because of, of what it means for freedmen and women, for the former slaves, but because of what it means for Chinese immigrants. And so the Chinese Exclusion Act is a sort of backlash against the 14th Amendment in some ways, right? And of course, mm-hmm. so is Jim Crow. The whole regime of Jim Crow is a rejection of the 14th and 15th Amendments and the constitutional guarantees to citizens and persons uh, of due process and equal protection and the right to vote. So by the 1880s, you have this tremendous political uh, reaction to the liberal promises of the Reconstruction period. Although it's not the case that that inaugurates an era of immigration restriction. I mean, it inaugurates the era of Jim Crow and the tragedy and atrocity of terrorism, essentially terrorism across the former Confederacy. And it also inaugurates Chinese exclusion, uh, which later also attaches to Japanese immigrants as well under different terms. But immigration from Europe is still entirely open for all those decades, the 1880s, 1890s, 1910s. The modern regime of immigration restriction is the 1924 National Origins Act, which establishes limitations of immigration from Europe and is itself a kind of reaction against progressive era reform. It's a reaction against mass democracy. So if you pull back from these individual moments to look for patterns across the centuries, there will be the ones that won't surprise you, right? That um, extensions of rights to new populations and inclusion of a broader group of people under the rubric of the people will elicit in response and a set of reactions of different sorts that aim to restrict uh, who the people are. You've written a fair bit about the link between immigration and populism and nationalism. I'm wondering if you see our moment in time as fitting into this cycle you're talking about? And if so, how? Yeah, although I guess when you pull back from it, maybe it looks a little bit different than a kind of checkerboard or some sort of alternating oscillation of a kind of a political machine. And things appear to be more born of the same moment, but experienced sequentially. So I wrote an essay a couple years ago, maybe about dystopian fiction. And what I wrote about was how our current political dystopianism is really of a piece with our fairly recent political utopianism and that dystopianism and utopianism, like nationalism versus globalism, say, are actually, they're they're sort of more like thunder and lightning. Like they happen at the same time, but you see one first and then you hear the other later. You know, that the speed of utopianism is a little faster than the speed of dystopianism, (laughs) like the difference between light and sound. So I'm not sure that I think that this moment is the new thing so much as it is just the later experience of this somewhat recent thing. I mean, if you think about the utopianism of the Obama campaign, the 2008 campaign, the sort of yes, we can utopianism of that. And and there was that whole claptrap about digital democracy and the democratizing promise of these new technologies. And then you think about our contemporary moment and the sort of no, we can't dystopianism of it and the sense that all technology is anti-democratic and pro-nationalist. And pro- I think we tend to fail to see that those two moments were actually one moment. A lot of, lot of uh, interested heads nodding in the studio during that answer, Joe. 
<laughs> well, you know, this is why you write a long history is to sort of say, well, yeah, we kind of float from moment to moment and you read a tweet and you read half a page of an article on The Guardian and then you go watch, you know, Fox News and then you and it's like it's very hard to put any vantage on anything. But historians are here to sort of say, all right. Press pause, <laughs> rewind, rewind some right. more, rewind again, and then play the whole thing in, in very fast speed. And what do you see? And I think then, then like the thunder and the lightning happened at the same time. Right. I think it's just human nature to crave causation, right? To look for causation wherever there's correlation because we like answers to things, right? So I think we have a, a bias in favor of that that maybe you help correct. Oh, yeah. No, we absolutely have that. And I, I, you know, historians don't have all the answers, but I think we generally do look at things from a slightly different vantage, and that is always helpful. So I'd love to turn to the second thread I'd love to pull out of your book, which is the concept of representation. How did the drafters begin to approach what democratic representation would look like in this massive new republic? Yeah, one of the things I'm trying to sort of remind the reader about our experiment in self-government is that it is quantitative. It depends on this very new science of demography. Our republic is really a kind of mathematical solution to the political problem of self-government. This is how we end up with the three-fifths clause, right? That is, is The whole thing is mathematical. Our representation will be, you know, like one member of Congress for every 30,000, or maybe it will be 40,000 people in the population, which requires a count, which is why we have a census. And then that's what we're doing because we cannot figure out how much wealth people have because it's too hard to calculate the wealth of the land or what other measure you would have for wealth. Well, it's easier to count people. So we'll represent people. And then once you represent people, then you're sort of stuck with this question of what about people who we consider to be not people, but property. And then you end up with this insanity, the atrocity of the three-fifths clause. Right. The three-fifths clause is the notorious fraction in our Constitution that assigned slaves the weight of three-fifths of a human for purposes of political apportionment. Where did that actual fraction come from? The specific fraction is pretty close to arbitrary, but it comes from a debate during the proposals to revise the Articles of Confederation, or at least... So the Articles of Confederation are drafted and then they're not ratified for years and years and years because people can't agree about a bunch of things in them, one of which is the boundaries between the states, but another of which is how taxation would ever work. Like, So the federal government cannot impose taxes. That's why we need the Constitution. But there's the question of repaying the debt. So the, the new United States borrows a lot of money, especially from France, but from other people too, to wage the war. And then is a question of how to repay the debt. Well, basically nobody's paying. The states are refusing to pay. But the question is, well, how could we apportion the, this different state's burden for repaying the debt? And, well, would that be done by how much land is in each state? Well, the, the big state's like, no, 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 we're not going to do it by how much land. Well, that would be by how much population we have in each state. Well, they don't know how many people they have anyway. But if they could, what would they do about the enslaved population? And so Madison, during one of these debates that goes nowhere and is never resolved, says, well, what if we counted enslaved people as three-fifths of a person for purposes of uh, the proportionizing the debt? And so that just is kind of a throwaway remark. But during the debate during at the Constitutional Convention over representation, when they come to a political impasse between the North and the South. Madison's like, well, I remember that three-fifths thing I, I I said a while ago, like a few years ago, we could use that. Um, oh and then God. that becomes the political compromise. But that's the political compromise on which the Electoral College also rests. 
which is itself a kind of weird mix of a numerical and a non-numerical solution to the problem of self-government. So I think what's so, you know, it was fun rereading those debates and trying to figure out, okay, like, what is the part that people need to know that people don't know? And most of us don't know most of this stuff, right? But we're stuck trying to have a reasonable conversation, a kind of fair-minded and open-minded conversation about, say, the Electoral College or about voting reform or about forms of identification as required for voting. And all of these things have pretty intricate histories where there is actually a, a good deal to be learned from why these things were set up in the first place. And that's, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book, which I say in the book that I think of it as a kind of old-fashioned civics book. And I really mean that. I get a lot of email from younger readers of my New Yorker articles saying, like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know the party system wasn't in the Constitution. You mean we could just get rid of the parties and, like, that wouldn't be unconstitutional? Well, yeah, like you could. (laughs) So it's good to pull out the story and figure out, well, why do we have parties? And why do we only have two? And what have parties done by way of improving Uh, democratic governance, and what have they maybe not done? Is the right to vote enshrined in our Constitution? Yes, although how to vote is left up entirely to the states, and that includes requirements, eligibility requirements. So in the state constitutions established, you can vote. And they have completely incommensurate rules. So early on, uh, I think it's in New Jersey, women can actually vote in New Jersey until they kind of close that loophole, like I think about 1804. Wow. In a lot of early state constitution, free black men can vote. And then that is closed up. So there's quite a bit of political experimentation. And what happens with the right to vote, the reason the right to vote gets expanded early on is that the original 13 states, most of them do have some form of property requirement. You have to own a certain amount of real estate or pay a certain amount in taxes in order to vote, in addition to being a free man. But when new states enter the union, you know, Kentucky and et cetera, their state constitutions dispense with a property requirement because they just have a bunch of people who've just moved into the state and are just trying to begin to make a living. And uh, they also have a little bit more democratic zeal in the West. And so the West, that being the West at the time, exerts this incredible influence on the East because then people back East are like, wait a minute, if I could vote in Kentucky, why can't I vote in Massachusetts? And so Massachusetts has a new, a second state constitutional convention. They come up with a new constitution so that eventually all the Eastern states revise their constitutions and change the voting eligibility requirements. Um, but no, that's, that's handled by the states. You mentioned that women kind of snuck in until 1804 in New Jersey. Was there any serious attempt to include women in the drafting? Where did they land on the spectrum of property to people to citizens? Well, the framers pretty much follow, in this regard, the political philosophy of John Locke. So for John Locke, you know, who writes uh, in the two treatises on government, on the consent of the governed, that all men are created equal in this sort of state of nature. And in order for their protective safety and especially protect their property, they agree to be governed. And that's where government comes from and that all government must follow that model. And that's why the framers write a constitution that the people will ratify. But for Locke, that was all men. And when men enter civil society with other men, they erect a government. But In their families, men remain the rulers. So a man is over his wife and his children and his servants and his slaves, what a king is to his subjects. And that is essentially a despot and has complete and arbitrary authority. And for Locke, that is the law of nature. And civil law is what happens between men. And so, no, at the framing, although there are plenty of women who are writing essays and 
some even giving speeches saying, okay, that's nuts. That doesn't make any sense. Like, how do women only exist in the family but not in public? Like, that's just a weird artificial idea and that Locke was wrong. Um, but that is the idea that the framers hold, right? So when they talk about all men are created equal uh, and that they have this right to govern themselves, they really mean all men. That within the family, men rule over women and children and slaves and servants who are all dependent on them and cannot be trusted with the vote because of their economic dependence on men. It's a, it's not so that women are less intelligent, although there are plenty of writers who would have said that. It's that women's very life depends on men. And so they, if they were to vote, they would only vote the way their husbands told them to vote or their fathers told them to vote because they would have no capacity for choice. Why did the drafters leave all the specifics of the right to vote to the states? And what have the repercussions of that decision been? Well, they leave a lot to the states. I mean, they also, there's a whole lot of litigation going on right now over, for instance, the right to education, which every state constitution actually has within it a right to education. Massachusetts has one of the most Mm -hmm. beautiful of these statements. It is a right of citizenship in a republic to have an education, and that it is an obligation of the states to provide it. But the Constitution doesn't talk specifically about a right to education, which is a problem for these litigants. It can be inferred, right? You can say like, well, it's the same with the right to vote. We have all this fine phrasing in the preamble about our domestic tranquility, et cetera, et cetera. We can't have these things in a self-governing nation without the right to vote and the right to an education because you can't vote well unless you have an education and therefore can participate as an informed citizen. Why these are implied and not elaborated really just has to do with the framers' interest in deferring to the states for practical matters. There are other explanations that other historians would give, but how people are voting in 1787 is actually, on a practical level, really complicated. In some places, you throw a bean in a box, like do you throw a white bean or a black bean? And that's how you know. In some places, you you know go to one side of the town common or the other side of the town common. And in some places, really radically, you might be using a piece of paper to write down the name of the person that you're voting for. Um, but paper is really uncommon uh, in 1787, and yet it could be anticipated. People are thinking, well, maybe people are going to be voting by paper. So like, why would they put down, they're trying to draft a timeless document, and the technologies of voting are in their lifetimes and among each member, each delegate to the Constitutional Convention, quite different and rapidly changing. So they're not going to elaborate on the mechanism of voting, for instance. And it is something that given how difficult it is to travel, the condition of the roads, these things vary state to state. You know, there's no election day. Elections take place over months. Uh, Presidential election takes months and months and months to tally. Uh, for decades because there's no election day. It's just a thing that the new federal government left to the states. Do you think that our founders would have been surprised that each national election now hinges on the black bean or white bean of a particular, say, Broward County, just to take a random place? So (laughs) I'm going to just object to the framing of the question. Like, I actually, I am so not interested in what our founders would think of us. Like, I am actually interested in how (laughs) we achieve justice and fairness and decency in a very vexing world. Like, I'm so like, people, who's your favorite founder? What would the founders think? Like, that is a very political question, and it comes out of originalism, Mm -hmm. which is a very recent way of thinking about the founding itself. And it's not how historians think. Like, people will say, like, who would you want to have dinner with? I don't want to have dinner with any of these people. I would die of malaria if I was in the room with them. Like, I no, I actually want us to think about now. 
you described this history as kind of an old school civics book. And if I'm correct, I think you're actually working on a formal companion textbook. Why do you think of it that way? And why is it so important for us to have more civics in our lives right now? I think that our political system is in fairly urgent need of reform across the board from town and city government all the way up to state and national government. And I think the best reformers in American history have been people who are acquainted, fully acquainted with the origins and changes in our political system. So I'm not, I am not a revolutionary. (laughs) I'm not calling for revolution. I do think there is a really urgent need for reform, and reform has to be well-informed. And there are a lot of reasons to write this book, and it was a joy to do, and uh, I hope more people read it. But asking people to do the work of knowing where we came from seems like a small ask. Amen. Jill, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your awesome book with us. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to Art Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We always appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.